we have no money. We now have 13 people on payroll. And it, it feels like it might, we might pull it all off, but it's a house of cards. And he's like, okay, what if I just wire you some money? I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right, today is a big episode for me. Whenever I launched this podcast, I had a very short list of people I would love to interview. Now it's not someone like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. I would not have much to talk to them about. It's actually other people that I've been reading for a while where I've been watching their journey. I'd love to just pick their brain. And today, it's someone from the top of that list. It's Nathan Berry. He is the CEO of ConvertKit, a software as a service company focused on email for creators. But I know him as a writer, as a creator, because I've been reading his blog. I've been reading his book, like Authority, for a very long time. So in this episode, we talk about this framework he's come up with, what he calls the ladders of wealth creation, how to go from an employee to starting your own side hustle, whether it's a freelancer or an agency, to eventually starting your own product. It's an amazing read, and he talks about how he came up with it and the principles of it. We then go through his own journey as someone who was doing something on the side and then bootstrapped this idea that is ConvertKit from basically nothing to something that now does almost $30 million. And again, he did this without raising any money, which is phenomenal. It's also worth calling out with ConvertKit, they did it in a crowded space by focusing on one persona. So he gives advice to anyone that's trying to enter in a market that's pretty crowded how you can actually compete with this bottoms-up approach. The advice is really tactical, so I would definitely want to pay attention to that one. Um, Also, he's been working in public, which means sharing what he's been doing for a long time. And he talks about how you can do this the right way, how it's great for building an audience. And actually, it's also good for acquiring talent as you're starting to grow your company. And then finally, you want to stay on to the very end. When I ask him... Nathan, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you in your career? He gives two stories about one night when his company was on the brink of actually maybe going under and how two people stepped in to really help him. But those stories are, are pretty inspiring to hear. But I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Nathan Barry. It was super fun for me. All right. Well, I'm super pumped to have Nathan Barry here today. I've been reading his stuff for a long time and through a fun Twitter exchange, I basically held his software hostage and begged him to come on the podcast. So he's here today. But Nathan, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So really quick on that, you and I had DM'd about, I don't know, random stuff before. And then I came across your list again. And I was like, dude, what would it take you to switch to ConvertKit? And you're like, come on the podcast. And now two days later, we're recording the podcast. So I like it. A good negotiation through Twitter DMs is the way to go. So yeah, you've lived up to your end of the bargain. So I have signed up and it's something I've been wanting to do for a while. We actually were going to do it in Q3, but pushed it. But you have changed our roadmap. We are now in the Q3 sprint. But I have a question for you. You are the CEO of a company that's approaching like $100 million in sales. You have a lot of things you could be doing with your time. And then you're one-off asking someone like myself, not that my email list isn't huge, 5,000 people, right? Asking me to do ConvertKit. I can't decide if, wow, that is really impressive that he's still scrappy and getting stuff done. Or 
should you be using your time doing other things? I just thought that was super interesting. Yeah, it's either the best idea or the worst idea, and the jury's still out on which. So there's an arc that I think companies go through of, you try a whole bunch of things, and we're used to failing, right? As founders, as marketers, any of that, right? We try something, it doesn't work. We try the next thing, it doesn't work. And I think we get into a trap of, we do that. We try something, it doesn't work. The next thing we try, doesn't work. Third thing, doesn't work. Fourth thing works. And we like do that for a while, but the habit that we built is trying the next thing. And so then we try the fifth thing, doesn't work. Sixth thing doesn't work. And we like skip back the part where we're like, hey, did you remember the fourth thing? Because the fourth thing worked. And you like did it for a month or you did it for a year or something like that, but you moved on from it. And something that I've noticed in ConvertKit is that we had a bunch of these techniques and tactics that worked really well to grow the company. And direct sales was one of them. I would say direct sales, affiliate partnerships, webinars, things like that worked really well. And as we moved on to other things, like, okay, that's working now. Let's try this. We often drop the ball on the previous thing, or we would staff it, but not well enough as far as like we'd put a single person on managing sales or that. And that would go well until that person transitioned to another role or out of the company. And so what happens is I think we find things that work and then weirdly move away from them. And so that's what we did with sales. And so we've actually built out a sales team, a small sales team. It's just three people now. But to specifically do that, because we found that getting key people on the platform People end up loving it. They refer more people. And so even though it's not like a scalable thing in that way, it works really well. And so in this season of the company, I just got great product and engineering leaders on at the beginning of the year. And that was like the last two years, product and engineering was my whole focus. And so now I'm kind of like, okay, let me get it, come back into the sales and marketing landscape, focus on growth, recruit a bunch of new key customers. And then work to build out those systems. I'm very much like a hands-on, do it and learn and apply that to our sales copy and everything else. And so that's the mode that I'm in now. On one hand, it could be highly effective. It has been in the past, probably will be again. On the other hand, I think someone who's like, hey, at a 70-person company, you shouldn't spend any time doing that. You should build out a sales team, just hold them accountable to their numbers and, and that's it. And that might be correct as well. And so I'm taking like a middle of the road, do both approach. It's such a tough balance to know when you need to be this leader that coaches and motivates and you don't get in the weeds and you focus on big strategic stuff versus when you roll up your sleeves and you're like, let me just do this and it gets results. Because even myself, we're 12 people, not at your size. I struggle with that. And we started the agency on the back of me going to job boards and doing free work. And I know that's how we can close deals. And sometimes I'll do that and we'll get business. But to make this really sustainable, I need to do something that's repeatable and scalable. But it's such a, it's really hard to know where you focus your time. But anyway, it it was cool to see that you're doing the same thing, but very nice. To continue that analogy, not that business and war are the same thing in any way, but people talk about leaders or a general, right, who leads from the front. And that's a really inspiring thing. And we're like, oh, that, right, they led the cavalry charge or whatever. Then there's the, the, that general who has like a very limited view of the whole battle because that's what they're doing versus someone who's like back in the tent, like strategizing with their advisors. On one hand, you might be like, oh, they're, I don't know, cowardly, sending their men into battle. Maybe. Or they might have the big picture of everything going on and they're like, oh, this is happening. Let's carve off a detachment and go do that. Let's go deal with it. And they might end up being a much better general. And I don't have a good answer on when is the right time for each thing. And I think it depends on where you're going back to a company, where your company is at, where your morale, your team culture, any of those things are at, how the market will respond. And I don't have a system or a framework of like when to know 
wind beach in in each role so figure it out as we go well maybe that could be your next big blog post because the what i want to start with is you wrote a blog post the ladders of wealth creation that it should literally be a book it should be a course it should be its whole lifestyle brand its whole credit movement it's extremely good and you talk about the path of going from an employee to someone who's a freelancer, owns an agency, to someone who eventually can sell a product. And it's really cool because you've done that path. And so I really want to break it down. And for people that haven't read it, pause the podcast, go read it and come back and and get to it. But for me, we talked before and uh, selfishly, I'm going to ask you for some personal advice uh, out of this whole podcast. I'm an agency owner. You've been in that position where you're like doing work, exchanging hours for money. And then I think the hardest leap is going to selling products, which could be a digital product, it could be an e-commerce product, or I think the holy grail, which is SaaS, right? Software as a service. Can you give advice from people making that leap, what they need to do? Because you also speak to you need to acquire new skills, and this could take time, it could take money. What advice would you give to people wanting to make that final jump to product? Yeah, well, the first thing is that you have to... What we think of product as something that you're selling, right? Of first, I'm building websites for $25,000 or $10,000 or whatever amount. And it's all, everything's totally custom uh, and that's a service. And then on the other side, we're selling a course for $100 or a software product for $29 a month. And that's a product. And the first thing you have to do is to realize that it's a continuum between those two things. They're not separate. Buckets. And so there's a whole gradient in between those. And that's where you get the whole trend of productized services of people saying, hey, I'm going to do SEO website like consulting and teardowns for $500 for, and they're going to spend an hour on it. They're productizing it as much as possible. So that's, that would be like exactly in the middle. But you have to realize that a product is, it doesn't have to be something that you sell. It could be taking a piece of information that you have. Like my article, The Ladders of Wealth Creation, is a product in the sense that I've taken a service that I used to render, right? A friend saying, hey, can we grab coffee and talk through these ideas. That was a one-off service that I didn't charge for. And now I turned it into a product that I'm still not charging for, but it, it is a product. And so one of those skills is looking at everything that you're doing and creating products out of it. And you get to practice this art of making products a lot of different times. And so you practice it in the form of a podcast, in the form of a blog, in the form of, as you run, you mentioned you're a 12-person agency, like you probably have internal practices of how you operate. It's starting to form an internal operating system for the company, right? The more that you write that down, the more that you're productizing it. And that builds that habit and that muscle. And then you start to look for, okay, what, what those are products as far as information, but then what are the products as far as code systems, things that I could actually see? And I love the transition into productized services where people are saying, oh, like an example years ago is, at 37 signals before they rebranded to Basecamp. I don't even remember what they charged for it. It might have been like $10,000 or something. And they would design, write, and code a single sales page for your business or something like that. And this was probably 2008, maybe. And they made a productized service where it was like, here's exactly what you're buying. Here's what we'll do for you. We've templatized it somewhat. And it actually had a sales page. Whereas most services that you buy don't have a sales page. They have a Here's generally what we do in Collis. So you don't have to learn the skill of copywriting. So yeah, at a high level, the most important thing is realizing that it's very much a gradient between that and identifying and breaking down the skills that need to be developed of going from one ladder to the next. Yeah, and I want to get into the skills you've had to keep and fine tune. 
to go to that next level of selling a product and then one that scales to a whole nother level. With us, we're looking to get into product. Because what does that mean? It's like, do we start and build our own software product? The problem is we have weaknesses there as far as building software. We're proven we can grow companies, but building the software is tough. So we're looking at this idea of buy, then build, acquire something, and then grow it. And so we're like waking up, going through microacquire, combing all of the listings, just trying to find gold in there. Um, we have one we're going through the due diligence through, which is a interesting learning process in itself. But where do you kind of stand on that? Going to that product phase and this idea of starting something like what you did versus acquiring something, because we're trying to shortcut that as much as we can, but you still have to learn things. But any thoughts on the acquiring versus starting? Yeah. So I haven't acquired a company that I've run for a long time. Earlier this year, we acquired a company called FanBridge, and that was the first acquisition that I'd been through. But that was we were acquiring their customers and eventually sunsetting their software. And so it's, it's sort of a different thing. The first two years at ConvertKit were absurdly slow. And then the third year, things started to take off. But what you end up in a software company in particular, especially in a competitive market, is that you just don't have enough features for it to be a compelling product. You know, you like solve one area in a, in a compelling way and then people are like, oh, that's awesome. I love the way that you did that. For us, it was the way that we combined landing pages with these drip email sequences. And that was the product. And people are like, this is amazing. Wait, where are the tags? How do I segment my list? All of these things. And they're like, MailChimp has this. Why don't you? And you're like, well, because MailChimp has been building for 15 years and we've been building for 12 months. And so you just lose deal after deal based on that as you're trying to have the money to build up the product and find something that's useful. And that's a painful journey. And so when you're buying a company or buying a product, you're trying to bypass that first. It could be six months to maybe three years, like that time period. For me, it was two to three years was the time period for ConvertKit. And so that's a huge jump forward. And especially if the product is more about having a viable business and less about solving your own problem. Like for me, I had a very specific problem that I wanted to solve of basically email marketing for bloggers and creators like myself. And so I had that idea of what I wanted to build. But if the quest is like any SaaS company that would be fun to build and grow and in a good market, then I think buying is a great path, especially if you can finance it on good terms, then you'll save a bunch of money. It has all kinds of issues. Issues would be things like finding developers to work on it. You're inheriting a legacy architecture in some way, all of that. But honestly, when you build from scratch, you're going to be, the, you're just the one who created that legacy architecture, <laughs> you yeah. know, or your developers did. And you're going to have to fix it in four or five years anyway. I think either way can work. I think that buying can cut two years off the time horizon, especially if your strength is in marketing, which marketing growth, which yours is. Yeah. And it's, if you can get something that's past product market fit is good, but I really like your point of, I'm big fans of brands and companies that started because they're solving a problem or see a real need in the market and fulfill that. So I think you also have to have the acquirer product fit as well to make sure it's true to like what you're going after because you don't want to do something because you ran a model and this looks exciting on a spreadsheet. It's got to kind of fit into the overall vision and goal. Yeah. What price point are you thinking of acquiring a product in or what, what's your target MRR? Really good question. What we're looking at is trying to look at financing options, putting down between 100 to 200K is as much as we want to put down. And then we're looking at some seller side financing options. Here's one problem. The company we've, that we really like, the tech is really strong, but they're all developers and they're not good at marketing at all. 
So their recurring revenue is not much. It's 20K a month. But we are really excited about the category in the industry. It's like in the e-commerce space. It's a, a Shopify app that does something that we're pretty bullish on. So we like that fit. And we're actually trying to negotiate where their developer stays on because that's our blind spot. So I don't know if that kind of gives you a little scale of like what we're working with, but we're definitely limited on what we're spending. Well, in 20K MRR, even 10K MRR, if you can get to that level, that that proves that there's a market, it can scale, all of those things. So things that I would really look for is, is it yeah, a product that you can be excited about? Does it already have traction? Are people buying it? Does it have a clear path for expansion revenue? That's one. So a couple different examples. ConvertKit, living in the space that we do, there's a very clear path for expansion revenue where if you have 1,000 subscribers, you pay us $29 a month. If you have 3,000, it's 49 and so on. So we have customers paying us 29 bucks a month and we have customers paying us $4,500 a month, right? In that whole range. Another example, let's see, if you take Help Scout, for example, they're charging, I don't know what it is, say $30 per seat. Every customer support representative that you add increases the expansion revenue. It goes from there. That works well. There's others where it's a little more forced on because it's just feature-based and it's not usage-based. And that's harder. And I'd be more wary of those. So Teachable is a good example of this, where they have feature-based expansion revenue. And it's, again, making up numbers, but $50 a month for basic courses, $100 a month for if you want these more advanced features, and $250 a month for this other thing. And that gets to be a hard business to scale because you're capping out at the $250 a month. And so if you look at Teachable's growth, they hit this flat point in the S-curve where they were approaching it, where their expansion revenue wasn't enough to outgrow their churn once they reached scale. Now, what they did that was brilliant is they added their own payment processing. And so then they had Teachable payments. They started to get a cut of GMV. They're charging three, three and a half percent. They're able to pocket about one, you know, a third of that roughly. And that ends up being fantastic where they're, now they have this expansion revenue that scales perfectly with the volume of course sales. And last year they grew 70, 80% through the pandemic and, and all that. I would always look for that expansion revenue and make sure that it's something that's usage-based and not just something that's feature-based. I'll be honest, this interview in itself, just is fun to talk to you, but it's worth it for that tidbit right there. And I'll, I might even bleep this out, but I'll even just tell you. So it's in the live e-commerce space where it's live shopping. And we've been able to test it with a few clients and it's worked extremely well for increasing sales and engagement. And I didn't even think of it from that lens, but as you grow with the amount of people viewing, the price goes up. That's really smart. So people that know like why ConvertKit, the pricing is so fantastic. As your email list grows, obviously it's more expensive for ConvertKit to manage it. And so the pricing goes up. So you're growing with these clients, but it's in, they're incentivized to pay you more because it's helping their business. So it would be the same. Here's the thing I'm concerned about. There's people in the space that have raised millions of dollars. They're, they have huge dev teams. They're, they're really talented. We can't compete there. So we're really looking to compete on persona. One thing you've done extremely well with ConvertKit is you've gone into a space where if, so if you would have tried to like raise money, it's like, hey, I'm launching a new email service provider. People are like, there's a hundred, I don't know how many there are, hundreds or thousands. It's like, why would you do that? But you went on, it was very genuine to you. You're going after creators. You offer features that are specific to what they want. And you've been able to slowly, almost how Netflix did it to Blockbuster, come in this back door and just become huge. 
Can you talk to me about what advice you'd give to people trying to do that same model where you're trying to go after this behemoth, but you're going persona-based? Yeah, so you have to focus on a really small niche to do it, right? Because in if we're talking in the e-commerce space or, or whatever else, it's really broad. And you're like, okay, we got our Shopify app done. Now let's immediately get Magento and WooCommerce. And oh, Squarespace just came out with Commerce. MailChimp's coming out. Like We're going to get integrations with everybody. And that is a sure way to screw yourself over on the dev side because you can't play that game. And so you have to say, okay, we're just going to be Shopify. Like We're just in that ecosystem. And someone comes and says, hey, could you do this for WooCommerce? And you just have to say flat out, no, I'm sorry. It's so hard to say no. I'm such a people please. Man, that's tough. Yeah, and have to do the same thing for like types of businesses, right? If you're in e-commerce, is it for like direct-to-consumer type brands? Is it better? What price point are you better at? Is it better for those who have tons of SKUs, like hundreds or say thousands of SKUs on their store? Or is it better... For those who have hundreds, like dozens to hundreds, and start to narrow in on those ways, I would even say pick one community. Let's say we're doing, you get early traction with beauty products, like direct consumer beauty brands, and then narrow your marketing for that. Have your sasapp.com slash beauty, and everything is focused around that. And then you do all these direct sales and outreach exactly in that space. And then when you're name dropping customers, you're name dropping Like I would have never heard of them. Random Shopify store owner has never heard of them. But within that tiny little niche, they've absolutely heard of it. And so you're like, oh, that person uses it? That's amazing. So what I did for ConvertKit very early on, first, I did not take this advice. I was even giving it to people through the course of writing my book, Authority, and talking about, hey, you need to focus on a specific niche, narrow down. The easiest advice to give and the hardest advice to take. And friends are telling me, you have to niche down. And I eventually, like finally did it two years in. And then it started to work. And so we went email marketing for professional bloggers. And that was a narrow enough niche to get us started. But then I went way more specific. Like one example was email marketing for professional paleo recipe bloggers who are women. And now that's a list of people. Like we can list out Google, like clicking through Twitter threads, like a bunch of searches. We can find all the most popular paleo recipe blogs run by women. And I bet they all know who each other are. And we did the same thing, men's fashion blogs in New York. What's another example? I'm trying to remember the subcategory, but like in the fitness space, like the high intensity interval training fitness blog. Because basically what I did is say, who do I have as customers that are already successful in hot traction that I could use as like an anchor name to drop in an outreach campaign? And then how do I draw a little bit wider circle around them and go after people like that? And so what happens is you've figure out who's useful now or like who who has success with your product now. Draw a slightly bigger circle, list those people out, cold outreach to them, follow them on Twitter, be active in that community, interact with them. And then you get to this point where you become the biggest fish in a very tiny pond. And there was this moment where someone said to me, wow, I feel like every blog on the internet is switching to ConvertKit right now. And I think our MRR was like $8,000 a month. And so it's like I can definitively tell you. <laughs> I'm not going to. Yeah. Like, definitely tell you that is not true. And so in that, I was just, oh yeah, tell me more. Like who's, who have you noticed switching over? And they listed out a bunch of the people who were in their mastermind group, who they were friends with, who they knew, who were all in that tiny little circle that I'd drawn. And they're like, this person switched. 
this person said they're in the process of switching. And these two people mentioned that they talked to you. And it's like, yeah, I direct messaged all of them or emailed all of them. But basically we drew this tiny little circle and went after it like crazy. And so that's the way that I would compete with a giant company and brand is that I would draw a very small circle. Because the other thing that's nice in SaaS is that you win at every step of the way, right? So ConvertKit's at 28 and a half million ARR. Our like stated goal on our website is to get to 100 million ARR. It's not like we're going to achieve self-actualization when we hit 100 million ARR or anything. But it's like a goal to set clear expectations for the team. But we win at 10 million. We win at 20 million, 30, 50, like all the way along. There's no, it's not like this is not a success and then it is a success. And so when you're fighting, going after these big companies, you're not in a winner-take-all market. Usually, there are some exceptions. Let's say you, you buy that company at 10,000 or 20,000 in MRR and scale it to 100,000 in MRR. That's a great business. And if you keep scaling it to 200,000, 400,000, that's an amazing business all the way along. Anyway, that's the way that I would go about it. And I wouldn't worry about that level of competition. Wow, that's really good insight. I think you answered my next question because it's one thing to have the positioning to compete, but then to pull it off and how you grow organically when you're not raising money to just pour into Facebook and Google ads and whatnot. Was that really the playbook for growth? Was it organically this bottoms up approach? Like, all right, I'm going to own all men's fashion bloggers in New York. You make a hit list in Google Sheets, you get the email addresses, you get the Twitter handles, and you're just being very authentic. Hey, we built this for you. would love to do a free demo, help you with the migration. Was it as simple as being that scrappy? And how long were you in that scrappy mode till it starts to flip? And you're like, okay, we need to do something else or start testing more things where we can put more dollars behind it. Yeah, so the first thing is on the scrappy mode, you end up doing an amount of work that doesn't make sense for the amount of money that you're making, right? So in this case, we were doing all this direct outreach, getting on calls, doing demos, and then doing the whole migration for someone for free for a $49 a month account. And so you're like, okay, so I think if they stay for 12 months, then yeah, I think we're up to minimum wage. Like one of those things. But what you realize is that each bit of effort makes the next sale easier because it made the product a tiny bit better. Now I have another, like if I'm in that same space, before I was like, hey, used by people like Joe. And now I'm like, used by people like Joe and Sally. And then like you keep adding names and that adds to the feeling that everyone's using your tool. So I would say we started that strategy at 2000 a month in revenue. So first two years got us from zero in MRR to 2000 in MRR. And then this strategy started in year three. That strategy was the only method for growth for 2,000 in MRR to 25,000 in MRR. About 25K is when I started to notice like word of mouth really kicking in. Each sale was getting remarkably easier and there was traction. And there were customers who had switched to us who were influential in their own, who then people would be like, what are you using? An example would be Pat Flynn from Smart Passive Income. And then on the other, like in the health and wellness space was a blog called Wellness Mama that was very popular, where they both signed up for ConvertKit through direct sales and outreach on the same day. Like it took a long time to get the relationship, but it was like July 15th and our MRR went from, and we actually landed another account that same day. So our MRR went from 10,000 a month to 15,000 a month in a single day. (laughs) But then what happened is those like influential accounts, maybe two and a half, three months later, would start to talk about, oh, I moved to ConvertKit. They drop it in a live stream or in a video. And, and that's when traction picked up. And so really that momentum, we ended up launching an affiliate program and go, going from there. But that momentum 
like the direct sales and then the word of mouth that came from it got us to 100,000 in MRR. So we went from 2,000 to 100,000 in MRR in, in year three. And then year four is when we started to try other channels and we really went all in on our affiliate program. And we basically said, okay, we're getting these into these blogs here. If I sold to like regular small businesses and they loved us, they might tell two or three of their closest friends or at the chamber of commerce. They're like, oh yeah, I signed up for a convert kit. Like you should too. With bloggers, they could tell thousands of their closest friends. And so we really went hard on the affiliate program. We did a lot of webinars and workshops to try to have an event for the affiliate to market and a reason for the customer to sign up on that day. And that year we grew from 100,000 to 500,000 in MRR. And that was certainly the fastest percentage growth we ever had. And then from there, it was just dialing in systems. We also planted the seeds for a lot of SEO, search-driven content and stuff like that. And that's sort of what's carried us on from there. That's, I'd say from 500,000 on is when we had like a balanced marketing approach that wasn't reliant on any one thing. Yeah, you having to get dirty and getting the DMs and close deals, but that's really helpful. It's doing the scrappy things early on, and then you can start to invest in these other channels or avenues or tactics that that start to create their own flywheel of momentum. One, You had Eric Jorgensen on, and I spoke with him talking about leverage. And as a CEO, that's where a lot of your time should be focused on is the different forms of leverage. And that can take a lot of different shapes and forms. And one thing that I'm interested here is capital allocation. You start growing, you start making money, and now you have profits. And then how do you think about either reinvesting those, like where to put those, but also this is bootstrapped and there's probably a time where you owned 100% of ConvertKit. I, I know it's still close to there versus when you take some off the table, what is your thought process as you're growing ConvertKit around capital allocation and the ways that it can go? Yeah, so I run ConvertKit in a somewhat unique way. And I'm actually working on putting together a presentation on like compensation and all that at ConvertKit. So we're, we are 100% bootstrapped. There's no outside capital the entire team does have equity. And that's something that I, I heard the Basecamp guys and others talk about. Oh, if we're never going to sell, like this never has value, which is complete nonsense, by the way. That is what you say when you're like, yeah, if this has no value, will I go drive my supercar or any of those things. <laughs> equity in companies, equity in successful companies has tons of value. And there's lots of methods for an individual to turn that equity into cash. So about three years ago, maybe a little more, I went and granted equity to our whole team. So today I own just over 90% of the company and the rest is owned by team members. At various times, people have sold equity and we've bought it back. Let's see. So you're talking about capital allocation. I guess the other thing that's unique about ConvertKit is that we have a profit sharing program where just over half of the profits in the company get distributed to the team. And that's a key part of our culture and the way that we build. Like Our mission is to help creators earn a living. And we think of creators on the team, the people building products, building the product as creators in that same way. And so we want you to earn a great living and be able to become financially independent working at ConvertKit, just the same way that you could be if you followed the playbook for authority and did a launch and made $20,000. Like you should have that same ability. So at this point, I think we've paid out $2.5 million in profit sharing to the team. And that number keeps, keeps going up. So I struggle a lot on capital allocation because... I'm always torn of how much to invest in growth in the business versus how much to take the profits. I think if you constantly pour everything into growth, then you're going to be in this position where you've worked on a company for five, six, seven years, and you're like still subsisting on $60,000 a year. And your family's like, hey, can we like 
I don't know, pay off some debt. And like, so we've taken fairly healthy profits. I'd say maybe 20% profits out of the business in the form of profit sharing and distributions for the, let's see. So if we look at the last four years, probably for two and a half of those. And in the last year and a half, we've been spending pretty aggressively to try to see if we spend more money faster, can we grow faster? And so we've spent money on a lot of paid advertising, brand campaigns, a bunch of things. Some have been really fun projects that we've wanted to do regardless, like the long-term bets in the brand. We have a project called Creator Sessions, which is that, and that's really sparked a ton of growth for us in the music space. There's sort of like these at-home or in-studio filmed concerts that we then premiere on our YouTube channel. They're quite popular now, and they're wildly expensive, and they don't return capital directly to the business, but that's like a long-term bet. But then recently we've pulled back a bit where we've said, hey, we're going to go, like we got down to say two to 5% profit margins. And we've been right there the last 18 months. And we basically decided we're going to march directly towards 20%, maybe even 30% profit margins over the next two years. Because we didn't see a strong correlation between the dollars that we were spending and accelerated growth. If that changes at some point and we like find an ad campaign that like, oh, this is working, let's pour more money onto it. We'll do that. But right now we're in the camp of, all right, let's take healthy profits. So yeah, we can talk about that more. There's also more on the equity side that I can share as far as secondary stuff like that. So whichever direction you want to go. I think that's one of the exciting things about being a bootstrap founder and growing to a business at your scale. It's You don't have a board or investors you have to adhere to. Because just like my perspective, I worked at a few startups where I got this thing called stock options, where I'm like, one day this is going to be worth something, but I can't go buy a cup of coffee with it. And a lot of those turned into to nothing. And so when I started this agency and we're making profits, I'm like, I've been having a cheap startup salary for a long time. I'd like to be able to buy some things for my family. And so I didn't invest in growth. It was like, I'm, I'm ready to get some benefit from the hours I've put in. But it's flipped in the past year and a half, two years where it's like, okay, now let's really try and think through how we invest those profits, whether it's for our agency and creating a moat, investing in the right people and and really going further there, having a sustainable way to get leads. And then what we've talked about is if we want to get to that product ladder, do we acquire a company? And so I always struggle with what's the right way to allocate money. So it's nice to hear how you think about it. And that gets to the next question that I have around you're competing in a competitive market doing really well. You have to get talented people what has worked for you to do that? Because my, my guess is you're able to cheat a little bit because you already had a little bit of, or a very significant presence online where you could you had an audience where you could draw from. But what's worked to grow the team and to get the right people? Because I assume also profit share has to do with that. Yeah, I would say there are three things that have worked and two of them still work. So the three things are being a remote company, and that's the thing that doesn't work anymore. What we call working in public. And then the third thing would be, I'd say our profit sharing model, culture, all like the level of autonomy that we give. So maybe we'd bucket that under operating system for the business and, and culture. So on the remote side, I don't want to be the person who's, I don't know, I hired a great team at these salaries, like you should be able to too. And then everyone's, yeah, but you did it when everyone wanted a remote job and there were almost no remote jobs. Because people always glorify their story and, and fail to notice how the environment has changed. And they're like, why don't you just do it? Like it's like, <laughs> you did it when there was no competition or any of those things. By the way, we're in the same boat. I hate that everybody's going remote because that was a selling point. And I'm like, crap, I've got to get more creative. But yeah. Yeah. Now there is well, like an example for us. If we put out an engineering job listing two years ago, year and a half ago, it would get 
200 to 400 applications. If we put out like a customer support management job listing, like a mid-tier like shift manager kind of position, we would get between maybe 800 and 1,000 applications, which was its own problem, right? Because now you have to comb through all that. Now I would say an engineering listing gets 50 to 70 maybe. And then that like general business one would get like 200. So they're like a tiny fraction of the interest that was there. And of course, there's, let's say only 10% or 15% of the applicants you get are ones that you would actually like strongly consider. So that's remarkably different than it was before. I'm very hopeful, two sides. For society, I hope lots of these businesses stay remote because I think that it's a better work environment and, and I love the flexibility it gives people. Purely selfishly as a business owner of a remote company, I hope they all force everyone to go back in the office. 100%. So there is another angle that you can take, and this is an article that I want to write about the difference between remote first companies, like what you and I run, and remote forced companies, which is what the other 98% of companies out there are. The culture is very different. The operating system, the practices of the business are very different. And then in a remote forest company, there's always this, but when are we going back to the office thing looming out ahead? And so one thing to do is really promote those angles. And I guess that gets into my second point, which is what we call work in public. And it's really about building a brand. And that's where if I'm going through a job board, have I ever heard of your agency? Have I ever heard of your software company? Anything like that. And the more you tell your story and work in public and share your journey, the more people will follow you. And when they're like trying to choose between five random jobs that all have $100,000 a year salary, they're like, oh, well, Nathan's, I've followed him since the beginning. And it's not that there's some magic in building a brand for your company. It's just consistently telling your story and saying, hey, this is what we learned. This is what we're struggling with. Here's how we chose a name for the business. Here's how we, like our whole journey. So if I were to buy a company, like if I was in your position, agency, trying to buy a company, I would write a blog post right now about the journey so far. This is where we're at as a business. This is where we're trying to go. These are the criteria. We're going through MicroAcquire. We're talking to FE International. We're like going through this thing. Here's what we've learned so far. Also, we haven't bought a company yet. (laughs) And then after you do successfully buy a company, I would write another post. And it would be why we spent a million dollars to acquire the SaaS company and how we financed it. Something like that. And I would talk about that journey. And then if you later realize that the brand that you, or the company that you acquired was a good product, but like the brand wasn't quite right. And so you, you know, acquire another domain name and you rebrand for the next launch. I would talk about that stage of the journey. And what you end up with is people follow you for your journey. They know where you're going. They want to support you in that. And when you put up a job listing, they're like, I would love to do that. A great example would be the customer support software Groove. They had this, I think they were maybe 25K MRR at the time that they started this series. And it was a public blog of their journey from 25K to 500K of MRR. And it was at a time where in like the bootstrap software world, there were a lot of zero to 10K, zero to 25K stories and very few stories beyond that. Like I remember, I now can't remember the name of the company, but I was at MicroCon, Rob Walling, his conference. And he had, someone came to speak and they were talking about how they grew their business to 600,000 in MRR. And it was just like, at the time it was like, that is insane. And so someone coming out and saying, I'm at 25,000. I'm at the peak of what this whole community has achieved and thinks is possible. And I'm going to in public grow it to 500,000 and share the whole journey. 
they got thousands and thousands of people who subscribed, who followed them along and linked to it. And, and so the backlinks go up, the community, the higher, like it just, it helps everything so much. Those are the things that I would focus on the most is basically do the, the whole journey in public, share that. I think it's great for recruiting. And then the final thing is have a good system for, have a great culture, have a, a good system for compensation, be generous with profit sharing and equity and, and all of that. And I think people respond really well to it. Yeah, that last one we're still trying to work through. That second point, well, we talk about how remote, unfortunately, is going away. Until you write that blog post and I'll share it, and I'll definitely want to pick that fight and do remote first, not remote fourth. That's another bumper stick or something that you should be investing in. But that second point around working in public, you've done that extremely well. As you look back on the stuff that you've shared, what has worked and why do you think that is? Because the reason why I ask is sometimes I'm like, what do I talk about? And you already gave me some great examples. But sometimes when you share numbers, you're a little nervous because it's, wait, what are people going to think? Does this sound like braggy or other people? It's like, wow, they're only making that much. It's all these insecurities go through your head. Looking back on stuff you shared, what has worked and why, or maybe even things that didn't work? Yeah. So someone will always say that you're bragging. And so just accept that and move on. It's if you were to start a YouTube channel, the important thing to remember is that the people that spend time commenting on YouTube videos are like the 14-year-olds who are not your target market. So you need to not associate comments with viewers. You realize that's not the same thing. And you're going to end up with the same thing of when you're writing a blog post. There's Jim just bragging about how much money he has again. So that's one side of realizing that people will always say that. The other is knowing that or that the counterbalance to it would be really sharing your learnings and then sharing your failures in that. Right. Cause if you're just like, oh, I made another million dollars with my agency or whatever else. And they're like, okay, like that's annoying. But if you're like, we, we hit a million in revenue with our agency, here are five things, like five key pivots that we made along the way that contributed to that. Like all of a sudden, every agency owner is, you're my new best friend. Please write more. Cause they're going through and they're like, oh, pivot number one. Yep. That worked for us. Pivot number two. Okay. That's a good idea. The next three I'd never thought of. And so really sharing the lessons and the takeaways, not just the, the big ones and then share the failures. I had a Twitter thread that I did recently that was basically talking about like ConvertKit has generated 83 million in lifetime sales over the last eight years. And so I like led with that. And then was like, here's the 10 products that I made before ConvertKit and exactly how much money they made. And it was like $0, $70, you know, $200. And so people really appreciate that side of it. And that did better even than some of the content of like, here's the wild success. And so I, I just think of what's the person who is a few steps behind me in their journey and what would they want to know? Or, and then what would I want to know six months ago? If you were to keep a log of what are the problems and questions that you're sol- or that you're facing right now, and you were to keep that in one thing, where like every day or every week, what are the problems in the business? What questions do you have? And you were to log and list those out and you go and you solve them and you figure it out. Well, every two or three months, look back at that list and go, oh yeah, I was super stressed about that. And I did know that was a huge obstacle. And now present me is like that. I know exactly how to do that. And so it's like, okay, now go back and write the article that you wish you had three years ago, or th- yeah, three years ago, three months ago, whenever. And then people following along will absolutely love that. And then, yeah, I mean, ha- have a way for people to subscribe and, and follow along. There's a, this advice doesn't quite work for everyone because you can end up in a scenario where the people who read your content don't overlap with the people who buy your product. Now, in the case, if you're putting out 
growth marketing content and you have a growth marketing agency, like that's a pretty, am I studying all your stuff? I'm taking notes and all of that. And it's all, or I can just hire you. And I'm like, okay, I think I, you know what you're talking about. Yes, I'll hire you. You do it. If you were to go build a SaaS application for beauty salons, they're probably not reading your growth marketing content. So there might be some overlap. It's still worth doing, but you have to realize that you might be getting a 20% benefit instead of a 80% benefit. So you have to watch for those audiences. That's why ConvertKit's really helpful because marketers read that. Basecamp, same thing. Web designers, general business people, everyone who read their stuff could also sign up for a project management tool. Yeah, th- that's a great call. There has to be an overlap. And by the way, those are really good prompts you gave as far as what are the questions you have right now, write that down and then looking back on them and you basically created your content calendar. And it's just, it's fun to reflect. I think I learned so much more when I have to think something through, write it out and actually articulate it as opposed to just going through it and not, not reflecting. But that's a really good tip. Yeah, there's one other thing that made me think of, if you're trying to get people to follow you, have a specific journey. Be explicit about the journey that you're going on. So one thing that I think got converted a lot of early traction is that I launched what I called the web app challenge. And I was very specific about what it was. I'm going to try to start a SaaS company, grow it to 5,000 a month in recurring revenue within six months with only $5,000 of outside capital. Love it. Yeah. And so everyone like could come alongside. And if you look back at that original blog post, there's comments from Heaton Shaw, who founded Kissmetrics, uh, David Hauser, who founded Grasshopper, and others saying, hey, if you need help, let me know. Because everyone's so used to giving out help and advice to people who do nothing. And so if you say, this is exactly what I'm trying to do, follow me on this journey. One, it's more interesting. Instead of, yeah, I'm trying to uh, grow an agency. What are you trying to do? That's why the Groove story resonated. Because it's, I'm at 25, I'm going to 500. Follow me on this very specific journey. And they even had a progress bar in their opt-in form. Oh, I love that. You could see like, oh, wow, he started there and he's at 37,000 now. So if you do those things, people will be more excited to follow you and then more excited to help you. Because if I know what your specific goal is, then I can say, oh, well, let me introduce you to this person or let me give you advice on that other thing. Or let me just follow along and cheer from the sidelines. And so many people are like, I'm trying to grow a blog. I'm trying to whatever other thing. And it's just, that's not a compelling journey to follow. A journey has to have a destination. And so be specific about that from the beginning. I love the idea of being specific and having somewhat high stakes. And it definitely puts you on the hook. And and if you fail, but I think you'll get a lot of, if you're doing it the right way, you'll get people to follow you for the right reasons and then build good relationships. Man, that's really good. So I know we're running out of time a little bit. I had two last questions I want to hit on. The first one is actually around your book, Authority. So I wrote a book and did a course and I had no idea. I was like, how the heck do I price this thing? I didn't even know I was going to do a course. And my friend Rob Sobers is, have you read Authority? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, you got to read it. And I literally read your book and I did exactly what you said. And what's funny is I wasn't even going to do the course. I read your book and I did that. And obviously that made that outperformed the book significantly. But as you look back on that, so many people have used that blueprint. What has aged well where you're like, I nailed that verse? What would you change if you were rewriting it today? Yeah, that's good. Okay. So things that would change. I think that courses might be a more viable path than books altogether. So I might skip the book. Maybe. It depends on where your strengths as an individual are. If you're like, I'm a writer or I'm teaching something that is best consumed through writing, then absolutely stay there. But the market for courses has just gotten huge. And the price point has gotten so much higher. When I reread Authority, one thing that stands out to me is like the dollar amounts that 
I was earning and then other case study people were earning, it was like $20,000 on a launch, $30,000, like in that kind of range. What's crazy now is the same people, like the same level of relative fame, those people are earning a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars or more. And a lot of the reason is that audiences are way bigger now than they used to be. And then price points are way higher. So if you take a something that might have been a, a book and a little and a community, right? They might have used the authority pricing model and, and done $30, $70, $150, or something like that, and made a certain amount. Now that's turning into a five hundred dollar course or a three thousand dollar course with this input of, of cohort-based courses. And so then you get a business that before would have been a great living for one or two people, two, three hundred thousand dollars a year. And if you look at something like David Perel and, and Tiago Forte's Rite of Passage or Building a Second Brain or anything that they do in that space, they're selling millions of dollars a year in courses. And so it's just interesting to see the landscape change. And so I would look for what are people doing more recently. I would also look for feedback loops that accelerate the growth of the course or the, the content. So either getting you testimonials or getting you your next customers. And I think my favorite example of this is Ship 30 for 30, which is a writing course. And it's basically, they do these 30-day cohorts. I think it started for a hundred bucks or less than a hundred bucks and they've gradually raised the price each time they've done it. And it's basically that you're going to write a short essay every day for 30 days and you're going to get writing tips, accountability, and make friends in the process. But the biggest thing is that if you want to be a better writer, you need to write. You have to if you want to become the noun, you have to do the verb. So writers, and one thing that I love about it is that all of these essays are published on Twitter. And so you end up, and it could go out in a newsletter or whatever else, but you end up with all of these people to their audiences, whether it's 100 people or 10,000 people, posting these essays that say ship 30 for 30 on the bottom. And so you're like, oh, here's some random person that I follow. You're like, what's ship 30 for 30? Like it has its own uh, growth flywheel built into it. And I don't have a ton of a like great examples, but that's something that I would look for where it's like, okay, that's brilliant. How can you build that? If I was rewriting authority today, I would go try to find 10 more examples like that and write that in. Because if you could pull it off, it's an amazing growth flywheel. That's a great one. It's like the the hotmail email or like the watermark that Flipagram had. It's a really subtle way to get the brand or the, the course out there. That's a good call. And I would say you'll see us doing it pretty aggressively with ConvertKit over time where we added powered by links to things. You you can turn them off on any of the paid plans, all of that. But we're even looking for a brand that comes over, maybe that doesn't make much money off of their email list, and but they have a big audience. So it's sort of like email gets expensive. We're not really making a lot off of it. We'll cut deals and stuff where it's okay, you have 100,000, 300,000 people on it. Let's put in some branding into your email template. Because actually our powered by traffic is one of our biggest traffic sources. And it's growing quickly. Converts much, much lower than like search or paid ads. We're all in on that billboard effect. And so if you can do that in your course or your other content, even little things like on your sales page, a a tweet link that says, I just bought authority from Nathan Berry. Like those little things really start to add up. And I'd look for it in everything that I do now. Yeah. And it's those subtle things that can go a long way. That's awesome. All right. So the last question I have that I like to always close with is, what is the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? Yeah, so you sent over the questions in advance. I was thinking about this and I was like, okay, can I tell the story? <laughs> and I think I can. <laughs> um, this was the end of year three, beginning of year four. 
we were at probably 110,000 in MRR, growing 20% month over month, and we had absolutely no money. We were spending every dollar as fast as it came in. So I think we had $30,000, $25,000 in the bank, maybe. And that bank balance was growing. We weren't burning cash. But revenue and expenses were growing so fast that if you represented ex- like cash in the bank as days worth of expenses, that was shrinking. And I was so stressed. And I was should I raise money? We have the fast growth to do it, but I didn't know how to pitch. I didn't know any of this. And I went to San Francisco and I went to the Saster conference. Oh, I'm going to give you a two for one special on this one because there are two <laughs> different people. I ended up having this conversation with Mike McDermott, who founded FreshBooks. And it was totally random. I met him at the conference and like DM'd him on Twitter and was like, hey, could you chat? And randomly, when I DM'd him, he, in this like 4,000 person theater, was sitting like four seats away from me. And he had seen me when he came up and sat down. He saw his own Twitter profile up on my phone. So when I DM'd him, he was leans forward, like waves and is like, hey, you want to you go chat? And he, we were thinking about raising money and trying to decide what to do. And he said, look, you can freeze your expenses at the level that they're at. Don't hire more. I know it feels like this crazy burden and you're doing everything you can to keep up, but don't hire more and grow into profitability. You have fast enough growth that you can do that. And I wrote an article about the whole thing. It's at nathanberry.com slash profit. And it's crazy. We went from like 3% profit margins to 50% profit margins in five months. We got behind on hiring and we ended up hiring more. We basically went from not being in charge of our, or in control of our financial future to having great control of it. Thanks to just this great advice from Mike. We didn't raise capital thanks to him and I'm forever grateful for it. But the other one and the story that I was thinking about is it might have been later that night, actually. Andrew Warner, who runs the Mixergy podcast, was having a scotch night at his office in San Francisco. So a bunch of founders are around. I think there's maybe 15 people that he invited over. And it was just like, come over, drink scotch, hang out, super low-key. And he and I had met before. And I think I'd been on the Mixergy podcast already. Yeah, I think so. And so we had somewhat of a relationship but didn't know each other that well. So we chat hang out the whole evening, talk a bunch. And afterwards, everyone's going their separate ways. And I'm heading down the escalator in this big office building in San Francisco. And he like leaves the conversation that he's in as everyone's walking out and catches up to me and is like, hey, you you seem a little off today. What's up? And so we talk through and basically talk about this financial situation that the company's in and how stressful it is. We have no money. We now have 13 people on payroll. And it, it feels like it might we might pull it all off, but it's a house of cards. And he's like, okay, what if I just wire you some money? And basically what it ended up that he did is he wired us $25,000 and he said, if you need to spend it, absolutely spend it, anything like that. And then at some point when you're in a better place, send it back, whatever you want to do. But there's $25,000. So it almost doubled our bank balance like immediately. That money I sat in a separate account, I think for maybe a year. And then I wired it back. We never spent a dollar from it. And it was probably the coolest thing. The only thing he said, he was like, if you ever raise funding, I want that to be like treated as an investment. I want to be like one of the first people in. You don't raise funding, return the money. The only thing that will be will upset me is if you ever try to pay interest on it. <laughs> and that was the the coolest thing. We didn't spend a dollar of the money. We returned it later, but it like provided this cushion that I knew, okay, we if something went wrong, we could make payroll, any of that. And it was just having another founder believe in me in that way. So anyway, there you go. <laughs> Nathan, this was awesome. I think the software hostage negotiation worked out well, hopefully for everybody. <laughs> I'm excited now to be a ConvertKit user, but dude, this was so fun. Uh, you 
offered so much insight for me selfishly. So I don't care if anybody else got anything out of it. I got a lot. So thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me and we'll chat soon. Where should we point people if they want to find out more about you or ConvertKit? Yeah. So I write about everything at NathanBerry.com. Barry is B-A-R-R-Y. Let's see what else. I have a podcast called The Art of Newsletters or The Nathan Berry Show. We talk about newsletters right now. So if you search either one in wherever podcasts are, come listen and then go sign up for ConvertKit. So we have a free plan. It's free for up to a thousand subscribers, handles landing pages. And now a lot of people don't know that. So it's landing pages, email, and then we also have a whole e-commerce portion now where you can sell digital products through ConvertKit Commerce. So yeah, those are all the places. No, it's like, yeah, the podcast is awesome. His blog is awesome. But ConvertKit, I've been wanting to use it for a while. It's literally built for someone like myself. So I'm pretty fired up. Nathan, thank you so much, man. And hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out GrowthHit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.